Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Here's our host, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio. What do wedges, bridges, leadership, happiness, social entrepreneurship all have in common? The state of Utah. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. We are very pleased to have back in studio once again our good friend Arthur Brooks uh, joins us today. He's been over at the Salt Lake Chamber and the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute's Utah Economic Outlook and Public Policy Summit. Also joined by Natalie Gochner from the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks, Boyd. Yeah, great to see you, Boyd. <laughs> uh, Arthur, you've been uh, busy the last uh, 48 hours here in yeah. the state of Utah. The, the, they, they always seem to put you to work when you get here. But let's uh, talk first about the summit that you just yeah literally walked out of. Uh, give us a sense of what was the conversation there? What was the focus? Well, I sat in a little bit on the conversation that was going on before I gave my keynote. So I try to get an idea of the, you know, get a cultural lay of the land a little bit. And it's very positive. I mean, look, every place has got problems. Every place has conflict. And if you didn't have problems and conflict in Utah, it would mean that you're not actually making progress because mm. the truth of the matter is you got to have a competition of ideas here in every place. Yeah. Um, but talking about things like that, the, the economy is in pretty solid shape and what kind of tax cut should we have? I mean, imagine that. Let's argue about how much of a tax cut and what form it should be in. I mean, you know, look. Radical I mean, stuff. Tell me. <laughs> Man, I live in Massachusetts. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot to recommend Massachusetts. We got a great governor and et cetera. But we just had the largest surplus in the history of our state. And we responded with a four percentage point tax increase. increase. So <laughs> – like, you know, next time any of our listeners are thinking about complaining about Utah, keep that in mind, folks. <laughs> uh, that's a great thing. And, and Natalie, I want you to jump in here quick because part of Arthur uh, being here in the state of Utah uh, is this unique opportunity with the University of Utah to be an impact scholar. Uh, tell us just a little bit about that, about Arthur, and uh, who else you have on tap. Yeah, happy to do that. Uh, you know, we have a new president, Taylor Randall. Uh, president Randall set a vision for the university to be a top 10 public university mm. with unsurpassed societal impact. So yeah. that's what we're after at the yeah. University of Utah. And it, it starts with our students and, and, and our world-class faculty and the research we're doing to you know, generate new knowledge and change the world. But we can also, as a public university, have amazing impact. And uh, President Randall's idea when he met Arthur Brooks was let's have him be an impact scholar. Mm-hmm. Have him come once a semester for a period of years and teach a class, meet with community members, 
understand the fabric of this community yeah. and learn from the scholars. So so this is the second visit, Arthur, yeah. that you've made? Second He's- official visit. But I've been coming back and forth to Utah for a long time. For That's right. 15, 20 years, as a matter yeah. of fact. And give me, just give me an excuse to come here is all I can say. But this is the best possible excuse. The University of Utah is on the map intellectually. I mean, this is a place that people are talking about as a region, as a city, but also as a university itself. And so – I want to go where the action is, and this is yeah. a lot of where the action is. Uh, I want to ask you, Arthur, because I know you spent part of your time uh, actually with students. Mm-hmm. And uh, give us a sense. What were uh, what was that conversation like? What did you learn? Because you're always learning. That's one of the things yeah. we love about having you on the program is uh, you are forever curious. Uh, what were you curious about with the students at the University of Utah? It's always nice to see what the undergraduates are thinking about. I, I don't teach undergraduates at my home institution. I'm a professor at Harvard, but I teach – I teach graduate students. I teach MBA mm. students uh, the science of happiness. And they're on average, they're 27, 28 years old. Mm. Some of them are married. The ones from Utah are married and have a bunch of kids. <laughs> the rest of them are thinking, I don't know. Should I get married ever? But, the, you know, the Utahns, they're, they're, you know, they're, they've got their lives more or less figured out. They're in their 20s thinking about different things than they are when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. So it's really nice on a lot of occasions to, to see what people are you know, thinking about what their sources of their anxiety are, what their hopes really are. And you can't just figure that out on your own. Like I got – I have kids. My youngest is 19. My oldest is 24. But when you go to a class of 200, you learn a lot from the questions that they're actually asking. And they're asking pretty sophisticated questions about happiness, about love, about their futures, about what they should be thinking about. You know, one of the one of the students afterward – you know, I said one of the things that I talked about with the class. It was an economics class and I'm an economist. But – the interesting thing about economics is it's based in a philosophy. Yeah. You know, it's how you can be productive, how you can have market exchanges. But then why? Why do I want to do that? Well, I want more stuff. Why do you want more stuff? And so, you know, digging in behind that, it literally gets to the happiness debate quickly. And one of the things that I said is you're not going to be happy no matter how economically successful you are unless you have a sense of meaning in your life. Mm. And the best way to know if you have a sense of meaning, you can't just say, what's the meaning of life while sitting on a rock looking at a sunset? Ask yourself these questions. I said – why are you alive? What's your answer? Mm. And for what would you be willing to die? Harder question. And you got to have, look, I'm not going to yeah. tell you what the right answers are, but I'm going to tell you, you got to have answers. And a kid comes up afterward. He said, so what would you be willing to die for? <laughs> Pretty interesting. I have to say, in other words, he had been thinking about that very question, yeah. a really contemplative question. It's good. You know, we can raise these deeper subjects yeah. with, uh, with these young people. It's a great opportunity. Uh, I, and I think that's so important. So often we, we think that they are just surface because they're always on social media and they're skimming across life. Uh, but there's a lot of depth there. Uh, but you have to both trust them. Yeah. And then you have to be willing to ask the question and then listen to the response. Yeah. I mean, that's the secret to being a good father, mother. It really is. But <clears throat> it's sort of easier when they're not your kids. And it's also one of the things that you find with the way that they question, the way that they talk, some things that we don't assume to be true. So, for example, um, one of the things that we know almost unambiguously at this point is that social media is bad for your happiness. Mm. It is. Now, there's special cases when it's not. If it's actually a compliment to your friendships, if you're using social media to figure out when and where you're going to meet up with your friends, then it's good. But all the other cases will make you anxious. They'll make you depressed. They'll make you addicted. They'll waste your time. They're horrible. I mean, social media is horrible in the vast majority of the cases. It's it's one of the biggest reasons we believe in my field that that depression has been going up and anxiety has been going up for young people, for young adults. And so we assume that, you know, these young people, oh, what a bunch of dummies. They want this thing is horrible for them. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's not true at all. They hate it too. Yeah. They just don't know what to do. They don't know what their life would be like if they weren't connected, mm. if they, they, they feel like they're living in a cave yeah. or something. And – 
they don't know how to not be addicted to it. So that's where we need to be helpful. Yeah. It's unhelpful for me to assume that young people are are too dumb to know that something is making them like hitting myself with a hammer is not is making me like I don't know why I've got this pain in my hand. Bomb, 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 bomb. I'm not that dumb, you know. So yeah. they know we need to be helpful in a different way, and that's very illuminating. They're smart. They're they but but they've been victimized. Yeah, this way. no question. And speaking of taking a hammer to your head, uh, and uh, politics is usually the chief source of unhappiness. Uh, but Natalie, I'm going to shift to you for a minute because I know part of your conversation yesterday you got with a, a group of mayors. Yeah. Uh, and Natalie, I want to start with you on this one because you got to observe uh, and it's one of your gifts. What did you observe watching Arthur Brooks interact with some of our mayors figuring out how to better engage in positive conversations around things that we have conflict about? Well, I start from the premise that local government is where you know, all politics gets really personal very fast. Yeah. And so that's where conflict is arguably the most challenging. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, 17 mayors handpicked by the Utah League of Cities and Towns mm-hmm. for the types of issues they're dealing with, uh, stretching, you know, all along uh, Utah, all around Utah. And what I noticed in the mayors was a willingness to listen, a hunger for this mm-hmm. message of how we deal with conflict. And I'll, I'll let Arthur answer you know, describe what he told them. But really what we had is a group of mayors that were very willing to be practitioners of better practices. Oh, love that. Yeah, it's a very interesting opportunity. I, I, you know, look, I love coming here. This is a real home away from home for me. Who knows? At some point it might be my real home. I mean, it's beautiful and the people are nice and, and they make me feel like family inevitably. But there's conflict. You know, there's conflict in every family, in every community. And, you know, and, and the conflict tends to be most acute when you're dealing with – my stuff versus your stuff. And you mm-hmm. see it really, really clearly in local politics. So it's an opportunity to see what you know, local mayors are, are dealing with. And a lot of it's high-class problems around here. You know, this is the state that's growing the fastest. You know, it's a state where a lot of people want to move. There's a lot of opportunity. Um, and, you know, it's great. You know, when, if you're living in Illinois or something, the big problem is the tax base is shrinking because everybody's running off. Right. And they're going to Utah, right. among other places. <laughs> so <clears throat> this is a high-class problem, but it's a problem nonetheless. And so you're, I was talking to the mayors about things like you know, the anger and, 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 and fear that people have about the changing – not just the demographics. Who cares? It's really the congestion, the traffic, yeah. the fact that our town doesn't feel like our town. I don't mm. know my neighbors. You're cutting a street through the back of what used to be farmland. I like that. This is where everybody's been forever. Mm. You know, it's, I get it. You know, And so – Talking about that is pretty interesting because those are not political problems as much as they're psychological problems. Yeah. I'm a social scientist. You know, I'm trained in economics and public policy. I suffered through a PhD in public policy. But I find that what I'm really talking about a lot is is, is psychology. And, and so what I talked about with the mayors is that you, you never start with public policy. You always start with human dynamics. Mm. You know, when, and I, I talk to these mayors. I can see, you know, I've known mayors for so long. And they, they go into these town these town hall meetings. These community meetings, and there's already 30 activists lined up behind the microphone, and they know they're about to take a beating. Right? And, and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the key on that is just is understanding how you can mitigate that problem, how mm. you can moderate it, make it better. And, yeah. and I talked about some of the best practices that we actually learned from you know, the psychology of, of human behavior, of crowds, of conflict. And so, for example, one of the things that I talked about with the mayors, or, and this is true for leaders of companies, or this is true for your family and your church, yeah. as far as that's concerned. Activists are always the ones who are going to make it sound like they represent the community, yeah. and they don't. 
-hmm. Activists almost never represent the community. And in America today, activists have simply have too much power. I'm not anti-activist. I mean, they've done great things for America. The civil rights movement was fundamental for making this a better country. But but right now in America, on both the right and the left, activists have way too much power. And that is true at the federal level. You and I know that real well. You and I became buds when when we were both in Washington, D.C. doing our thing. Um, But it's also true at the local level. And so one of the things that I recommend to the mayors is that virtually all of them have very strong, quiet support. Mm. You got to recruit people from your quiet support base to be your posse at every one of these community meetings. And every time an activist says X, if it's not representative of the community, your friend needs to say Y. (laughs) And that's the way that the actual community can be represented in a healthier way. Yeah. Fantastic. We're going to stay with the conversation. We'll be right back here on KSL News Radio. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Welcome back to Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, and we're really thrilled to have in studio Dr. Arthur Brooks. Uh, join us, Impact Scholar for the University of Utah, and Natalie Gochner from the Kim C. Gardner Policy Institute. Had a big event over with the Salt Lake Chamber, uh, talking about all things policy there. Uh, I have to tell you, Arthur, you know, you've always had the title of Utah's favorite Catholic. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you say that's all the Catholics. Don't I, lie to me. <laughs> no, and I, and I also know that you have a whole bookshelf of copies of the Book of Mormon. But I want in every you, language. In every language, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so I want you to know that I also have a bookshelf that is filled with your books. Because everybody <laughs> says, Have you ever read this Arthur Brooks guy? <laughs> you guys kind of agree on some stuff. So I have I even got one this week of Love Your Enemies. Uh, showed up here at the studio. Oh, so God. I have my own collection. That's going. great. You know, Love Your Enemies is not a it's not a it's not a phrase I coined. Yeah. As all of our <laughs> listeners will realize, you know, I stole it from Matthew five forty four, but it's good. It's good life advice, isn't it? It is, yeah, it, absolutely, and a good path to happiness. Yeah. Uh, Arthur, I want to get into this uh, new book that you're working yeah. on. Uh, this whole idea of of pain versus suffering, and right. uh, give us a, a little insight into what you're working on. Well, that's what I teach it at, at the Harvard Business School. Is I teach the science of happiness, and you know, people find that kind of surprising. It's sort of weird, it, but it's a really popular class because by the time they're in there second semester of their second year of the MBA program, they're starting to freak out. They're starting to figure out that, you know, this worldly success that I'm working on, they're going to get a ton of it. I mean, the Harvard MBAs are going to get really good jobs, but that's not really the secret to happiness. And so I have a class that's basically in three subjects, faith, family, friendship, and work that serves others. Mm. And, you know, that's the secret to it. It's embarrassingly simple. You know, it's like nerd with a PhD has to tell you what grandma almost told you. (laughs) But, you know, you have to decide what 
that those things mm-hmm. mean to you and how you're going to practice those things in your life. Yeah. The main problem that I see, and I've written a lot of books about happiness. You know, it's because it's, it's my main area. I write a co- weekly column in the Atlantic about happiness every Thursday morning. And um, one of the things that I found is that a lot of people will say to me, "Yeah, I would love to be happier." I say, "Okay, great." I say, "But I, I got so much pain in my life. I have yeah. so many, so much trouble in my life. I have so much hardship mm-hmm. in my life." And they honestly believe that they can't be happier unless their pain is gone. And that's a huge mistake. Yeah. It's a, an unbelievable misconception. You know, one of the most amazing things is, that, you know, people, I mean, life is trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like we have to go looking for it. It's going to find us. And, and some people have a lot of it. Some of the people listening to us right now have really, really big problems. Yeah. I got that. But the amazing thing is that even the people listening to us who have really big problems in their life, they're going to have moments of happiness today. Humans are funny. You know, people say we're made to suffer. Yeah, but we're really made to be happy too. And understanding the science behind that is very freeing. And so Mm. we're not – the biggest problem for people who are suffering in their unhappiness is that they feel that they can't be happy unless they get rid of their pain. You're not going to get rid of your pain. Right. You know, pain is natural. Pain actually helps you survive in the wilderness. You know, things that you don't like, fear. Well, that's good. That keeps you alive. Anger. That, that, you know, properly channeled can be a very constructive thing for sure. Uh, so the key thing is for us to understand that and mm-hmm. to learn from our negative emotions, to manage our negative emotions, yeah. and to learn that a life fully alive – that's the title of the book is Fully Alive. is coming yeah. out in September – is one in which we experience everything. You know, a lot of people listening to us are, are you know, Christian people. And the funny thing about Christians is when they forget that this is a, a religion in no small part based on suffering. suffering. Look, yeah. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he suffered and died on the cross. That's what people who are not Christians like, are you crazy? Your Savior is somebody who got <laughs> – and, and our, the Savior lived a life fully alive. Yeah. You know, that's the key thing. And until we can really understand that and absorb that, we can't understand the slings and arrows of yeah. the outrageous fortune in our own lives and, and live our own fully alive life. And, and the, this book is not a religious book at all. This is a book about how the science tells you mm. that you need it all, man. Yeah. You got to experience it all. And also you can manage your unhappiness. So yeah. that it takes on a better perspective. Uh, and that's so important. Uh, Franklin Covey founder, Hiram Smith, actually wrote a book uh, called The Pain is, in- Pain is Inevitable, Suffering is Optional. Uh, and that pain is part of what we're going to, we're going to have these challenges. We're going to have these difficult and setbacks. So whether it's in our business, whether it's in our family or in our community, uh, the suffering's optional though. And it's mostly based on how we go about it and how we use a lot of these same skills, whether we're applying them to a political problem, to a community problem, a personal problem. Uh, it really is figuring out how do you build those bridges? Uh, how do you use happiness as the, the key place to start in all of that? Yeah, for sure. What you do. And, and the, the key thing to remember you know, there's this this very famous 85 year study that was run out of my university that was that looked at people who were graduating from college in the late 30s. JFK was in the original cohort, at, you know, because he went to Harvard, and you know, uh, and then it was matched up with people who didn't go to college, and from that were also from the Boston area, and then it included their spouses and their children, and so this is incredible cohort study that goes across 85 years, and it asks what did they do. What did their life look like that predicted when they were old that they were going to be happy and well? Well, happy well is what they were called. And well means lots of different things, right? Mostly good health, but uh, good mental health, good physical health, et cetera. But the happy part is really interesting. And, and, you know, some of it's pretty obvious. It's, you know, smokers were less happy well. Heavy drinkers were less happy well. You know, people who were, you know, didn't watch what they eat and never exercised. Duh. Everybody knows that, right? At this point, we don't all practice that necessarily, right. <laughs> but, but, um, 
But then there was the big three that were really interesting. Number one is that the people who wound up being old and happy and well, they had a good strategy for dealing with the down part of their lives, for the mm-hmm. hardships in life. They had strategies. They didn't avoid yeah. it. They had strategies for dealing yeah. with it. Um, the second thing is that they were always curious and learning. And so people who read a lot, people who asked a lot, people who listened a lot, they were a lot happier when they got older. But by far, number seven, that really blew everything out of the water – this is what really dominated the entire study was that happiness is love. Mm. That people who had good relationships, people who cultivated as much as they could a successful marriage. No, but not everybody gets that. Yeah. But there were a lot of people who didn't get married who had it as well because they had very close personal friendships. Mm. Happiness really is love and that's what we need to know. Uh, so a lot of what I write about these days and what my students are very interested in is, okay, okay, professor, thank you. How do I get it? Now, really? How do yeah. I get it? How do I get it? And so, and that's a really interesting thing. I could spend the rest of my career talking about how to love and how to be loved. Yeah. How to not make mistakes that push love away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and there's a lot that we could do and a lot we could be better at. But, you know, this stuff has changed my life, quite frankly, but it's what I wind up talking about with politicians all the time. Yeah. You know, I'd sit down with senators and members of Congress and, you know, mutual friends of ours. One of the things I say is, how's your marriage? Yeah. You know, you have friends. Are you lonely? This is the things I'll ask. And you're like, holy mackerel. Nobody's ever asked me this before. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and we wonder why there's so much loneliness in Washington, D.C. Is There's, there's a yeah. lot of folks uh, walking around the Capitol wondering uh, where that meaning is or where yeah, that yeah. love is. Yeah, and they're, they're looking for it in the wrong places. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look externally for these things, remember, happiness comes from faith and from family and from friendship and from work that actually serves other people. And if you're looking in for it in money or power or pleasure – or prestige and fame and admiration, boy, woe unto you. But most, a lot of people don't ever figure that out, and so they need some, you know, nerd with a PhD to tell them the obvious. And so that's what why God put me in Utah today and California tonight. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here today. We're, we'll take you here any day we can get you. And uh, thrilled to have you a part of the University of Utah as an impact yeah. scholar. That's such an important thing and and crucial dialogue uh, that will continue to happen there and elevating things to a, a different approach in terms of. Good public policy, how we use the data to look at it, but most important, how do we create and foster, create space uh, where happiness can really thrive and and you can have that upward mobility. Uh, That's where things get exciting, and I think that's why America exists. For sure. You know, the University of Utah is a real leader in that intellectually, and the the Gardner Institute is is very good at linking savvy, smart policy issues with the reasons that they actually matter which is human thriving, human flourishing. It's, it's one of the reasons I'm, I, I want to be involved in this. It's, it's really important. You know, you also have the Sutherland Institute here, which is a, a great state think tank that you've been involved with for many years and which they have my admiration as well. Look, it's the big issues. And the big issues are not, you know, land rights and, you know, water. And, and I, I mean, that stuff matters, but it only matters because we want people to live a better life. We yeah. want them to flourish and be able to raise their kids and, 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 and love each other. And, and that connection is something that I'm very encouraged about because I see that understanding here. Yeah, fantastic. Arthur Brooks, uh, thank you so much for stopping in the studio. Natalie Gochner from the Kim Gardner Policy Institute. Uh, thanks to both of you for joining us on Inside Sources. Always appreciate your work, your insight, and your curiosity. Come back real soon. We'll be right, right back. Thanks. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. 
I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.